I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. So today, I thought we'd talk a little bit about a budding wine region in the U.S. I'm talking about Virginia. So Virginia as a wine region is, in fact, not so new. Colonists at Jamestown discovered wild American grapevines in 1607, and documents appear about Jamestown wine in 1609, which means that they were making wine in 1608 and possibly as early as 1607. That's a long time ago. Now, the earliest colonial wine that we know of is from Popham Colony, vintage 1607 in modern-day Maine. And it's possible that the Jamestown residents also made wine in 1607, but we don't know for sure if it was 07 or 08. But we do know for certain that some of the USA's earliest wines came from Virginia. And what did these first wines taste like? Well, old documents from two Jamestown residents give us clues. So Captain John Smith said that the wines reminded him of French-British wines, whatever that means. I'm assuming that it's French wines that were sent to Britain and then people would bottle them there, the merchant bottling that we're all uh, familiar with. And then there was an Irish sailor who also lived at Jamestown. His name was Francis Magnal, and he spent time in Jamestown and he relayed that the wines reminded him of Alicante wine, which uh, he was probably referring to wines from Alicante region in Spain. Now, if you're a history buff and you want to know more about colonial wines in Virginia, just check out hogsheadwine.com. My friend Aaron has done some great work, and he has a hefty bibliography on the subject, so you can check out more if you're interested. Moving on, time marches on. uh, The colonies declare independence. Thomas Jefferson brings back vinifera vines from France and plants them in Virginia. Now, his vines didn't thrive because of phylloxera, but at that time, the correlation between phylloxera and vinifera wasn't quite understood. Now, Thomas Jefferson's original vineyard has, in recent years, been replanted, and it's pretty magnificent to behold. So in the 1800s, Virginians were still making wine, but they were making it from Vitis Labrusca grapes, like Concord, and they were making it from Vitis Estivalis grapes, like Norton. But if you think about it, in the 1800s, Virginia was caught in the Civil War, and so fine wine production wasn't really a high priority. And also during this time period, cider was the beverage of choice. Uh, Lots of people would drink tankards of cider before breakfast as they were writing our founding documents for our country. (laughs) Um, So meanwhile, back in Europe, we're in the throes of the phylloxera epidemic. It's the late 1800s. People are experimenting with hybrids, and they need to do this because they're concerned that all their vinifera vineyards are going to get lost in, in Europe. So a couple of decades after Prohibition ended in the U.S., this guy Philip Wagner brought several different kinds of hybrids from France to his Maryland vineyard, and he wrote about the, ve- the benefits of Seval, Baco Noir, and Vidal Blanc. And Wagner really introduced um, and influenced winemaking on the East Coast in the mid-20th century with all these hybrids. And you can still see vestiges of this today um, as far as Canada, but all over the East Coast. Pennsylvania, um, Virginia, lots of, lots of states are working with these hybrids still. And then one man changed everything. And he set the stage for Virginia's wine future. And this guy is the guy that you all know. Any guesses? Nope. It's Konstantin Frank. He moved to New York from the Ukraine, 
where he used to grow vinifera in freezing temperatures. And at this time, a lot of the wine growers on the East Coast, they said it was too cold to grow vinifera, but Frank knew that it could survive because he used to grow it in the Ukraine where it would get to below 40 degrees Fahrenheit, which is really, really cold. He said that when you would spit on the ground, it would freeze before it even hit the ground. So he knew that the U.S. was not too cold for these grapes, and he started making wines in New York, and he also enthusiastically championed vinifera vines. So his ideas traveled all over the East Coast, all over the U.S., and uh, they were heard by Treble Lawrence in Virginia. He was a grape grower hobbyist, and he had all these vineyards for fun, and he made his first vinifera wine in 1970. He founded a vinifera wine growers association and got a lot of people interested in these wines on the East Coast. And there was a, this was the real start of modern winemaking in Virginia, the modern winemaking movement that's happening today. By 1980, there were 30 wineries in Virginia. Today, there are over 200. And that's, that's really incredible growth. And Virginia is one of the fastest growing wine regions in the U.S. In 2012, it had the country's fifth largest production by volume, and it was just behind New York. Virginia has nine wine-growing regions and seven official AVAs. And you might be wondering, what is an average year in Virginia like? Winemakers will tell you in Virginia that the one thing you can count on is that every vintage will be completely different than the previous one. And if you're interested to know more details, you can get, um, you can get this documentary called Vintage, where they interview all these uh, great Virginia winemakers, and they'll talk all about the different vintages. But let me just give you an example. In the last decade, Virginia has dealt with hail, extreme drought. I was actually living in Virginia during this extreme drought, and we weren't allowed to water our plants, go to the pool. Um, we were advised to take showers very lightly. Like, it was crazy how uh, intense this drought was. So we dealt with that extreme drought. Uh, the next year, there was an earthquake. Two hurricanes have hit Virginia and uh, brought with them really, really heavy rains that have affected the crops. So every year, I mean, you're dealing with some kind of natural catastrophe. Uh, once in a while, you'll get away with, with a great year, but not, not every year. And the winemakers here, because of this, they're versatile and they are great problem solvers. They have to be ready for everything because nature can throw so much at them in this particular region. In fact, in uh, California or Oregon, if people have problems with hail or drought or uh, heavy rains that they haven't experienced before, that's really atypical for the region, maybe because of um, El Nino or something, they usually call winemakers in Virginia because they've had experience with all this stuff. So over the last several decades, Virginia's wine identity has really emerged. And here are some cool wines to look out for. Cabernet Franc and Viognier tend to get the most press. And I particularly enjoy Viognier from Blenheim, which is um, started by Dave Matthews from the Dave Matthews Band, uh, Jefferson Vineyards at Monticello, and Michael Shapps. Michael Shapps started off as a kind of a traveling winemaker around Virginia. He made wines for, um, for King family wines, and then he struck out on his own and is now doing great things. So he makes a great Viognier. Also, my favorites are aromatic whites from the cooler microclimates, like White Hall Gewürztraminer, and also Petit Verdot from warmer microclimates, like Pollock's Petit Verdot. And Virginia also has some great Bordeaux-style blends with incredible power and ageability. A few of my favorites are Linden's Hard Scrabble Red and Barbersville's Octagon. Many producers are experimenting with less popular varieties too, like Lovingston. They make a, a Pinotage, and Luca over at Barbersville is making some Nebbiolo. Another trend I've noticed is that many producers also are playing around with dessert wines. And these uh, range in style from Pasito-style wines to fortified port-style wines. And you'll find um, fortified white wines and fortified red wines. A real array here. King Family Vineyards makes a great port style wine called Seven. Um, it's like a red, a red port style wine. Uh, but there's all sorts of kinds. Almost every winery is experimenting with this. And in Virginia, there are laws about distilling, so you can't always distill your own mark to um, to fortify your wines with. But a lot of people will send their mark off to have it distilled for them, and then they'll buy it back and use it to make their dessert wines. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Virginia grows lots of Norton, and they're pretty famous for this non-vinifera variety. So it's only taken about four centuries to get the Virginia wine industry revved up, but put this state on your radar, because soon you'll start to see lots of great Virginia wines in your markets. 
It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S.com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Oh, I'm going to need you to pronounce, uh, I get the Linda part, but Linda can... Milagros Violago is on the show today because <laughs> <laughs> I'm really bad at rolling R's and stuff. No, that's fine. Nice to have you here. Great to be here. From Contra. From Contra but, for now. Yeah. Well, my official title there, uh, it's on my card. It's itinerant sommelier. Is that true? It is because <laughs> it's true. That's what I am. I move. Wander the wine world like Cain. I wander. <laughs> yeah. So, but okay, let's take it back. All right. 1995, Vancouver, you're there. What's happening? Yeah. What's going down? 1995, Vancouver. Vancouver is the big city. The big city. For me, I grew up in Winnipeg, which is a small, small city in the middle of Canada. And, um, and I decided that the place for my future, whatever that was, I didn't know that it was going to be restaurants, and I didn't know that I would stay this long and working in restaurants, but I decided that Vancouver was the place to be. Unfortunately for me, I didn't really know anything about wine, and I didn't like wine. I hated it. But as a waiter, I learned, as a server, I learned that uh, I needed to learn about wine. Question of economics, you know how it is. You can talk about wine, you can sell more wines, you can make more money. So I had to learn about wine. So uh, I was lucky there was somebody there that, uh, that really was interested in wine and was really interested in sharing his knowledge. And uh, he did many tastings with all of us all the time, and it was fantastic. <laughs> Side note, he became my boyfriend for quite some time. That kind of helped as well, because we did our studies together. But in Vancouver, so that's what I did. I was working as a server in 95, 96. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then? Then I went to Grand Cayman. And he went to the Cayman. Cayman Islands, he and I went. We chased the money, which... What um, was what was, was my, that a good experience? No. Yeah. It was the worst. Usually I find chasing the money is the worst It was the experience. worst. It was the worst. But also Grand Cayman was, was the worst experience of my life. And I worked doubles a lot. So I had constant heat rash. Because uh, I worked in a restaurant where we had to wear um, uh, tuxedo shirts, cummerbunds, bow ties. Right, right, right. all right. the time. Like the really uncomfortable. Days. And um, my partner at the time, he was the sommelier, but somehow he didn't have to work lunch. So he was, he was swimming all the time. Right. He's like, this is great. This is fantastic. I had a crap time. So, uh, yeah, I didn't learn anything there. I didn't really, yeah. We, we, I think the, the contract was for six months and we, we broke the contract. We left after five and uh, never looked back. Yeah. Then we returned to Vancouver. And what was that like? And then, well, that was great because that's when I decided that I was going to study wine. So I took uh, the WSCT courses, a couple of the courses. And then that year, 98, 98-99, um, it was the first year that uh, what's now called the um, International Sommelier Guild. So it's Canadian Sommelier Guild based out of Toronto. It was the first year that they offered their sommelier diploma course. So I took that thinking that it was a little out of my league because here's this guy, my partner, who'd been studying wine for quite some time, so who was primed and ready to go for this course, and then there was me. But um, it turned out to be quite good for me. I, I, I learned a lot, and then after that, um, then I got my papers, and then I, then I just started traveling. It was great. And where'd you go to? Um, first stop was Australia. We decided to go to Australia. The time food and wine was, um, people were starting to talk about food and wine in Australia, but internationally they were talking about it. And uh, 
thought it was a good place to be. And then when I landed there, I realized that I could get a job just in wine. I could be a member of the wine team, which was pretty cool in 1999. And so um, I did just that for a number of years. Because it wasn't like a given thing normally in Russia. No, and certainly not in Canada. Even now, um, you rarely will find someone that is working in a position that is solely a sommelier. But there, we just did wine stuff. Sure, we worked service, of course. But um, we were focused on wine, which was great. Yeah. Does that mean Australians can drink? Is that what the implication is? <laughs> yes, but yes, but we all knew that anyways, right? <laughs> yeah, so I stayed there until 2002, but I did my, I took a small break in 2001 and, uh, and I left Australia to come back to Canada to prepare for my um, advanced. Because you were going to take the test. Yep, and I was going to take the test in London, um, but I decided that I wanted to leave Australia so that I could just taste wines for three months, taste wines and read and and be exposed to things other than Australian wines. Right. Because that's the majority of what I was tasting at the time. Because it's so far removed that you were... Right, and I just didn't... I, my like palate, that. I knew that my palate was changing, and so I, I wanted to change it back a little bit. <laughs> that makes sense. So we did the exam in, in the summer of 2001, and uh, that was a f- unusual experience. And uh, But we passed. And then I returned to Australia. What's it like to like be living with yourself while your palate's changing? What, what are some of the It was weird because, um, you know, everything that I was tasting, especially with respect to reds, were, were wines that were foreign to me when I first got there. And then I just started getting used to them. And this is normal to be tasting a really extracted Barossa Barof, Valley Shiraz and uh, a lot of VA and not a whole lot of acid and a lot of oak and a lot of alcohol. And it was just very strange. And I was getting worried because when I was tasting, the odd times that I was tasting... Italian or French wines, my, my palate was like, this is weird. But I remembered that, no, this wasn't weird at, at one point beforehand. So I wanted to, to change it a little bit. And it was worrisome because when we, when we um, first arrived to London and, and for the advanced exam, of course, they have a few days where they're tasting and reviewing some questions. And uh, we did some blind tasting and we were a little worried because there were some wines where we thought, oh, this is Australian, but it can't be Australian. This is ridiculous. But actually, they were Australian because Australian wines were actually quite present in the market at the time. At the time, yeah. Late <laughs> in, the, 90s, in the London market at the time. It was like yeah. a big thing. Yeah. yeah, now it's South Africa. But yeah. So, yeah, it was fun. And you then decided to. Well, then I returned to Australia for another year. I kind of bummed around, did a lot of yoga. I moved to a lovely place called Byron Bay, not known for wine or food. It's known for its beaches and its surfers and. Um, and it's alternative healing and all this other stuff. So I was a vegan and worked in this wine bar that happened to be run by these Canadians, and um, and did a lot of yoga. That's what I did for my last last little last little bit in Australia. And then I decided to leave. And um, I thought that um, the place that I needed to be was America. I thought if I wanted to learn about wine, be exposed to a lot of international wines, be exposed to other people that were interested in wines and working with wine, it would be in America. And I had this brilliant idea, and I'm not really sure why. I think because I liked Vancouver so much, and I liked the idea of San Francisco, that I thought San Francisco was the place. So I did a lot of homework. I had my, a rather large list of places that I wanted to, to visit and people that I wanted to meet. <laughs> and then I went there, and there were no jobs. No jobs in wine. And very few jobs were offered to me, and uh, only because they, they, they didn't want anybody at the time, or didn't need anybody at the time. So that was kind of heartbreaking. But I really loved San Francisco, so I stayed there for a month. What was the realization that this wasn't going to happen? I mean, was there a moment where you were like, oh. No, everybody was telling me. Like, even, I, I even called Larry Stone, and, uh, and uh, he, he outright laughed at me and said, oh, that's ridiculous, I don't even know you, and there's so many people that I know that need jobs, and I can't give them jobs. So, it's like, oh, great. Larry Stone's laughing at me. And this was at the beginning, but I, I stuck around because I liked, I liked being in, in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, I befriended... Um, Christy Dufo and spent a bit of time with She's her and Jason. Great. They were awesome. And, and I was actually offered a job at Gary Danko, but as a server. And um, it was appealing, but I, I made a joke that I'd have to throw one of them under the bus and it wasn't going to happen. So, so uh, and there was just something inside me that said, I just, this, this wasn't it. I knew that I needed to find something with wine. So I kept looking. So I moved, my, my, moved, my thoughts moved east and I thought about New York and uh, there was even less in New York. Less, there was nothing. But uh, a guy named Ralph Hersom that used to be at Le Cirque, he was kind enough to, um, to spend a lot of time with me on the phone and give me some advice. And, um, and he was the one that planted the idea of Charlie Trotters. 
And so I... The big T. The big T. And, and uh, I bought his books, read his books, all of his books in a day and uh, about service. And, uh, I thought they were pretty inspiring. Yeah, they were great books. The thing about the guy going to take the guy home in a Jeep and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, so. That stuff really did happen. The tape yeah. on the shoes, that didn't happen. But the, the driving stuff, that happened. And, um, I think that was John Winterman. At least he told me it was. <laughs> it could be. Um, and, uh, and I emailed Charlie, and within 24 hours, he emailed me back. And, um, you know, I'm trying to play it cool that, you know, I've got a lot of time on my hands. And, yeah, I'll be in New York. Because at the time, New York was uh, hosting Vin Expo America. And so I said, yeah, I'll be in New York, so maybe I can pop by Chicago. Meanwhile, I'm desperate. <laughs> but I did. And... Uh, and uh, and it was great. I was terribly, terribly sick. I was. I had the f- really bad flu. I was supposed to stage at um, at True with Scott Tyree as well. He was a smart guy. He is a smart guy. He's a great guy. But um, my first my first spot was going to be with with Charlie for a few days. And I. Wa- but the thing is, I walked in the door, and the minute uh, the minute I walked in the door, I just knew that that was where I needed to be. And the two days went really well, in spite of the fact of being really sick. And um, and uh, he offered me a job, so it took a little bit to uh, get the visa, and then uh, and then I was there, December second, two thousand and two. But it was funny because um, I was staying in a hostel. I stayed in, I lived out of a hostel for like two months, and uh, so I arrive at my hostel and I'm wandering the streets. It's just a little bit of fresh snow on the streets of Chicago, and I just realized that wow, I've moved here for this job and I've done zero homework about the city. I know right. nothing about the city. What if I hate it? But I loved it. And if anyone spends any time talking to me about anything, they will know that Chicago is my favorite city. It's the best city to be. So, uh, yeah, I stayed there for a little while. And that was like four years on and off. On and off for four years. Well, on and off because um, I like to move. Yeah. And uh, for various reasons, I decided to leave. And um, somehow, Charlie and I never really talked about it. Charlie and I, to be honest, never really had any lengthy conversations about anything not wine-related or not specific to the restaurant. But um, somehow he seemed to understand that my needs were to leave and it had nothing to do with him or the restaurant. It was totally my thing. And he let me come back, like four times, I think. So I'm very, very fortunate. So um, I went back and forth. What would I do back and forth? Like harvest and stuff, right? Well, I did. I went to Vancouver for a little bit and worked and I did harvest. I worked harvest in 2004 in Oregon. And uh, then I returned to Chicago. We were going to open a restaurant in New York. So I came back and forth. so then I started coming back and forth to New York and Charlie was going to open a restaurant in New York. Yeah, for we were a while. going to open a restaurant in Time Warner where um, right. where Landmark is now. Yeah, yeah. And so I spent a lot of time and I going back and forth and meeting with people and meeting sommeliers and working La Pole and eventually working the James Beard dinner thing, something, something. Whatever Jim, they do. The, the awards. The, the, <laughs> the dinner, house. Awards. Oh, the awards. Okay. Um, <laughs> that was Jimmy was there. <laughs> I don't know. Bald and fat, <laughs> dancing around the tables. No. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's what I did. Oh, um, yeah, that's what I did. Back and forth. Hmm. And and what was it like working with Charlie? I mean, you said you didn't talk much, but I mean, here's this place. It's at the apex of things. Well, in a lot I mean, of ways from fine dining. It's I'm, American renaissance of the deal. What'd you think? I don't know. Unfortunately, nowadays, if you hear people talk about Charlie, it's, it's not favorable. Um... I'm not going to talk about that. I had a very good experience there. I mean, it was the most challenging place where I've ever worked. It was very difficult physically. We were two brownstones, um, three floors. So the basement were the wine cellars. There were two dining. There were dining rooms on two floors. There was a kitchen table. There was a dining room next door, cellar next door, offices upstairs. We'd print menus a la minute because <laughs> we changed things up all the time. It was a very challenging place. There were times when in my whole section, not not a single table had the same menu as the other and and therefore the wines and stuff so we we changed things a lot so it was very very challenging and it was also probably the longest service that i've ever worked in my life so on weekends we'd start service at 5 30 and we probably leave at four in the morning sometimes mm-hmm. and then for the sommeliers we had to come in early so i think i started my day at 12 or one o'clock in the afternoon and that's and because then, like people from other countries like to dine late sometimes and they'll they'll take their dessert at one in the morning dine late but also people also like to come early Right, and uh, the Americans like to come early, and the international guests come late, and so we did have two full, full seatings. Like we would do sometimes over two hundred covers, tasting menus, plus two kitchen tables. I think about it now; it's crazy. 
But we did it, and we did it well. At the time, we did it really well. And Charlie was the guy who didn't want to repeat the same dish in two successful right. nights. That's right. He wouldn't repeat menus, and um, it was very, very... I mean, we had a lot of re- repeat or regular guests, and so we'd have everything on file, and they would never, ever get the same menu. Never. Never. It was great. So it was, you know, physically it was difficult. Mentally it was difficult. Certainly we all, had, we all pushed each other. It was a fantastic environment for me to learn about wine. Um, I told you a story yesterday. I walked in there for my observation, and they threw the wine list down in front of me. It was 65 pages, leather-bound, slightly intimidating for anybody. And, uh, you know, I'm pretending that, oh, yeah, I know these wines. But I, I had no idea. And, uh, and actually, for my first year, my first 12 months as a sommelier at Charlie Trotter's, I actually never worked service as a sommelier. So in before and after service, I'd help with the wines, I'd taste wines, I'd put stuff away. But during service, I was just like a back waiter. Or a waiter. I would I would not speak I was not allowed to speak to guests about wine, which was heartbreaking. And then You're like, I could uh oh sorry. Well maybe my first month I get it, but you know, six months in it's like, well, I can say something. And I, I didn't. And I wasn't allowed. And and I was very strongly reprimanded by my peers. <laughs> and then they would also look at me and say, you know, after twelve months, life really does change after you. And it did, you know. Then I I get it. I mean, there was one point when Charlie took me aside and said, Linda, you need to just step back and watch and learn everything. And then one day you can do whatever you want. And then one day came and it was great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then I left. And then where'd you go? Well, in 2006, I decided to travel. And uh, actually, this is kind of key in 2000. So Charlie, every year for his anniversary, for the anniversary of the restaurant, would host these epic dinners that I'm not sure too many other chefs did, if at all, in America at the time. And so for his 19th anniversary, we had people like Pierre Hume, we had Andoni Luis Aduriz from Ugarits, um, we had Paolo de Marchi as the winemaker, it was great. So there's a lot of planning that is involved with this, of course, and a lot of emails and a lot of correspondence. And, um, <clears throat> and so I had decided to to leave and I was cheeky and I, I made my last, I requested that my last day be this anniversary dinner. And theoretically speaking, with, with working there, you could either give your notice and work out your time or you could give your notice and that would be your last minute of, oh, really? <laughs> of really? working. Then, then that happened. So I, you know, I, I had to do it when I knew that I was able to leave and I could leave and, and afford to be, to be finished. But I, I was lucky he let me stay. He rolled his eyes a bit, but he, he got it. <laughs> and, uh, and so, and, and I'm a notorious procrastinator. So for my last week, in addition to um, preparing for these events, because there's not just one dinner, there's a number of events, I, I had to finish all my work, right? Make everything ready for the handover to the next person that was taking over after I left. Which I, I thought I would I'd do on this one day, which was a Thursday. Thursday was the day that everybody was coming in, flying in, and um, other people were driving to the airport, meeting them at the hotel. It was fine. And I thought, I'll be in the office by myself, doing my work. It'll be fine. That didn't happen. I, all of a sudden, I, I was um, assigned to, uh, to meet the Spanish team at the hotel, which bothered me a lot because I'd been dealing strictly with Pierre Hermé. I spoke French with him. It was fine. And now I have to meet me of all the Spanish-speaking staff, on uh, people on the staff, I was the one that had to go meet the Spanish team. And I had no time to work. So I went there. And uh, actually, so it was Andoni Luis Aduriz and, uh, and um, some of his staff, one of whom actually was his translator, which was a relief, wonderful guy named Daniel Hunter. And um, we had to hang around the hotel for something. And then eventually I got this message from Charlie, you're coming to dinner. It's like, oh, so I'm not even working service and I still have work to do. But... You know, making most of the time, I, I was chatting with Andoni Luis Aduriz, and, uh, and in that time, so already, you know, I had a few days left. I was leaving two days after the anniversary, and I, I was going to go to Paris. I was going to go to Spain. I was do some eating. I was going to work harvest. Everything was set. And then in that moment, I decided to change my plans and, and add a side trip to San Sebastian and, and eat at Muguritz. So fast forward, and I, in September of 2006, I decided to have lunch with Andoni Luis Aduriz because uh, I had also, in those few days, my last few days at Trotters, I'd watched how they worked, I tasted their food, I saw their food, and I knew that, wow, 
this could be a great next step. That's not even the language. This could be the next step. And I ate there, and it was really a beautiful experience. If, if anyone has ever been to Mugritz, they know that even just going there, it's just a magical, magical place. And uh, after that meal, I asked him if I could work there, through a translator, of course. And, uh, he, you know, he gave me the number for the uh, HR, and we, for months, stayed in contact. And so I went back to Chicago and started teaching myself Spanish. I'd worked Harvest as well in October at Alvaro Palacios. And uh, so I started teaching myself Spanish then, and I went to Chicago, did a little bit of work, started teaching myself Spanish, got a tutor, kept in contact with them, and eventually, uh, eventually I had an interview on online, and then I got a job, which was great. So I became the head sommelier at Mugritz in 2007. It's fantastic. And you were there for a few years. I was there for, um, this is my longest consecutive working stint. I was there for almost three years, two and a half, two and a half months or something. Two years and two and a half years, sorry. Yeah. And what was the wine list like when you got there? Well, the wine list is quite small. And um, small as in maybe, maybe a hundred wines. I don't think it has changed much, which is fine. It's, it's, it's a cool place. People don't necessarily go there for the wines. But um, there were a lot of, of course, Spanish wines, of course. Um, something that, again, I didn't realize I wanted to work with him and I didn't really consider what it would be like in Basque Country. I didn't really consider what it would be like that I would be working there, what the wines would be like. And I, I remember sitting down looking at the wine list thinking, crap, I don't really like these Spanish wines. You know, really modern, modern, 200% new oak, <laughs> really extracted high alcohol Spanish wines. And it's not just that I didn't like them. You know, it's not just that they weren't my personal taste, but it was more that they just didn't go with Andoni's food. Again, if anyone has ever eaten at Mugaritz, they will know that his food is very delicate. He uses little to no seasoning. <clears throat> and, uh, and it's very, very clean, clean flavors. So it just didn't make sense to have these wines. Now, I, I also understood that there are some people that will not bend, and they will have these wines. But, you know, I, th I thought it was time to change things up a little bit. And so I brought in a few more French wines. You know, it was the first time that they'd ever had Grunewaldliner around and, and sake. And it was, it was a bit of a challenge. And that's when I started to, to look for natural wines. And somehow, somehow at that time is when I went, met Pascaline. I'd been, I had already known Jenny from Jenny and Francois, and uh, somehow we had met. I don't know. In two thousand and eight, we met some. We met at Racine in Paris, and uh, we had a conversation. And uh, so that was my inspiration. It's like, she's doing it in Belgium. I can do it here in, in Basque Country. So it was great. It was a bit of a challenge, and things are things are better now after I've left. But uh, it was a challenge at the time. Hmm. And I mean, what was Basque Country like? I mean. Well, who are those people like and what's Have that you ever place? been to No, I haven't been. So it's very, very beautiful part of the world. And it's very lush and there are a lot of rolling hills. And when I visited back in 2006 to have my lunch in September, I actually ended up staying for a week because it was so beautiful and there was just so much good food. You can have so much good, inexpensive food for pinchos, for tapas. And uh, you're by the ocean, there are these rolling hills, everything is green, the sky was blue, and I thought, oh, this is fantastic. And then I moved there in um, 2007, and I, it was raining for two solid weeks. I thought, what? what's going on? Again, I didn't do my work. <laughs> and it was raining nonstop, and someone said, that's why it's so green. So it's, it's raining a lot. So um, I had to get used to that. But also the people there are, um, well, it's a, it's a, the Basque people are, are fighting quite strongly to independence. To separate from from Spain, um, they want to keep their language, which is a remarkably difficult language to learn, but a very very beautiful language to listen to. They want to keep their customs, they want to keep their songs, their dance, their music, and I get it. It's it's a fantastic and beautiful place to be, but um, also they want to they want to uh, well they're not I'm not going to say that they're not welcoming to outsiders, but they everyone is an outsider if you're not Basque. So I even had Spanish friends that had moved from other parts of Spain, and even though they were Spanish, they were outsiders. I was more of an outsider, of course, but they were outsiders. So, so that was a little difficult. You know, there wasn't much else for me outside of work. You know, didn't really have yoga. Though there wasn't a lot of things for me. So by my last year, I, I uh, discovered that from Ondai, there was a great TGV to Paris. So I would take that for weekends, which was great. Inexpensive, weekend in Paris, do everything I need to do, and then come back and work. So it was difficult. Um, what was it like selling natural wines to the, that clientele? <laughs> so selling natural wines, I mean, 
they, they weren't necessarily fully natural wines, you know, not extreme no-sulfur wines. I'm talking about organic and, and just organic and, and biodynamic wines, kind of. And uh, I, it was challenging. I, I learned very quickly that if I was talking about natural wines or if I was talking about biodynamics and the idea of following the moon, that was, um, that was considered taboo. And I thought it was quite funny because um, historically speaking, there's, there's, there have always been witches in Basque country. You know, there are even people, there are even people with names now or, or who name their children after witch names, traditionally witch names, as opposed to traditionally Christian names. So I, I found it kind of funny but that, that they wouldn't listen to that. But even if I spoke to, say, Leida, who was our woman in charge of our garden, and I kind of danced around, not necessarily biodynamics, but I kind of was asking about what she does to plant. She said, well, I just do whatever my grandmother does, and when the moon is like this, this is what I do. When the weather's like this, this is what I do. So I thought, traditionally speaking, this is what they do, but in practice, I don't know, in drinking, I guess they don't really care. So I never really talked about it. Initially, I mean, I'd get, if I could get someone to try a wine that wasn't, you know, Arzati or some famous Spanish wine, I was already making some headway. And then if they enjoyed the wine, even better. And then if they started asking questions, even better. So it was fantastic. But there were some wines that, have you tried El Jalipins? Yes. That's, that's a fantastic wine. And so that was my, that was a discovery of mine when I, when I was there. And I think I sold it to one Spanish person in the entire time that I was there. But I would sell it to visiting French winemakers or foreigners that wanted to try something natural. That one I would that one that one I would talk about for sure. But in general, it was difficult because I found Spanish and maybe Argentinian to be the most nationalistic in terms of their own wine buying. Well, that makes sense. I mean, even in Italy or even in France, you know, there are some places where you go and you're not going to find anything. Else. So I, I I get that. I, I I was sensitive to that. But because we had a lot of people in our kitchen that were from other places and we had a lot of guests coming from other places we had to have a few different things i mean certainly like when i did a wine pairing i never did a set wine pairing which was fun i i learned that from the woman that that was before me um because i had to have a few options first i wanted to tailor it to you so if you were a foreigner chances are you wanted to have only spanish wines if you were spanish chances are you wanted to not have a lot of spanish wines maybe you even wanted sake maybe you wanted white wine maybe you wanted no red wine i don't know i played around with it so i had a lot of, i had a lot of options it was fun it was a lot of fun. How would you compare the two restaurants? I mean, Trotter's and its heyday, Muguri's. What do you think about the differences? Because in a way, one really, from complete outsider view, mine, uh, summed up one era of dining, and another seems to be summing up another. Even in America, it seems like so many people are influenced by Muguri's. How would you sum up the differences at the actual well, restaurants? I think people have, um, I think there, there has been a little bit of negative press. <laughs> recently about Charlie and the restaurant. And unfortunately, I think that has overshadowed, overshadowed the history of the restaurant. Um, I think Charlie is definitely one of the most important people in the history of culinary cooking in America, just as Andoni is now in Spain. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I can't compare because they're completely different. And if you were to talk about Muguri's, I mean, how would you sum it up having been there? It's, it is a place where Andoni let us be completely creative and do whatever we wanted. Obviously, there's, you know, there's within reason, but it had to make sense with the restaurant. But, you know, the people that are working in, in R&D are always thinking of ideas and always traveling and anything is possible and they will try anything. And it was fantastic. So for me, I didn't have the time to play, but I had this whole team that, oh, gee, I want to do stuff that's a little bit more interesting for people that can't have alcohol. And so I'd come up with these ideas, and then they would execute them, and I'd try them out, and it'd be, it was a really great collaborative experiment all the time. It was fantastic. He let us play. Yeah. And, and after you summed up that, that kind of working experience, after you did the three years there, what was the next move for you? What did you feel personally? I needed to get away. <laughs> I think I think I just needed. I'm not sure what I was looking for. Um, I, I don't think I was looking for anything. Um, I have some friends, Ula and Sebastian, that uh, that are in Malmo in Sweden. And at the time, with a third person, they had a restaurant called Trio. And uh, Ula and I, Ula 
I knew because he actually did a stage at Charlie Trotter's many years earlier. Eventually he worked at Aquavit and some other restaurants here in New York, and then he went back to Sweden. And uh, his food was quite similar. I'd eaten there on a hol I'd visited them and, and eaten there on a holiday, and the food was clean and very Scandinavian and crisp and fresh ingredients and fantastic. Completely up my line, and completely in line with what I was working with at Moverates. And so I thought it was a good idea to work with him <laughs> in, in Melma. So I moved to Melma, learned Swedish, I moved to Melma. And um, the, the difference with that is um, Ma uh, Trio was a restaurant that uh, was quite small. And the trio is named after the three. It's three guys that were owners, so it's trio. Tasting menu only. We often did wine pairings. It was 100% natural, natural wines, which is a great learning experience for me as well. Um, but we only had uh, six tables, and we didn't turn them. So oftentimes we would only have 12 guests. I don't think we ever did more than 18, which is kind of weird and it's kind of weird for me. And... Um, and uh, so for work-wise, my, my learning wasn't really growing at the rate that I'd wanted it to go. And I wasn't really, I didn't feel that I was really contributing to anything. And I didn't really feeling, feel like um, it was a great fit for me. On the other hand, I had a fantastic lifestyle. I had a fantastic apartment and I walked all the time and I was going to yoga. And so I was trying to find something that could have great work, like I had a Mugritz and a great person. Um, Life outside of work, which I had in, in uh, Malmo. Yeah. So what did I do? I traveled. I ended up traveling. Where did you go? Well, um, by by chance, <clears throat> sorry, by chance, just as I was finishing up in Malmo, I didn't know where I was going to go. Oh no, that's not true. I was helping out with, with I was helping out. By then, I had also started uh, consulting with Nuno Mendes at Vigent in London. So I did that in 2010 as well. So I was, I was doing both. And so I was going to keep with that a little bit. And I'd had a few other things up my sleeve. But by chance, literally in December, I had just finished, I had just finished my time in Malmö. I'd done a little bit of traveling. I was in Istanbul and I was in Paris. And I got this email from Kobe, Kobe Dismaro in, uh, at Indewolf in Belgium. And he said, well, you know, so-and-so, this mutual friend that we know, says that you're probably looking for work and I need to sommelier. I want to change my wine list over to natural wines. And uh, he says, you're the best, so uh, can you come and do it? So I Googled, I Googled Drenoter, because Malmo is also a very small city. So even though I had a good time, I knew that I couldn't spend a whole lot of time there. And I Googled Drenoter. Have you ever? Do you know where that is? No, ma'am. <laughs> it's, it's in Flanders. It's about 30 minutes from Lille in France. And uh, it's a very, very small town. And uh, I was scared, you know, I, I, I don't know if I wanted to, to do the small thing, you know, in, in Spain, I didn't live in San Sebastian, I lived in a small village called Oyartsun, population 5,000, <laughs> Malmö, I think population 1,000, so I kind of, was kind of nervous about being in, uh, in Drenoche, so I kind of pushed it off, I had other things going anyway, so I, I kept putting it off, and he kept, in, he was very smart. I don't know if he intentionally did this, but every once in a while he'd send me an email, so what do you think, you know, you can come for dinner. You should really think about it. And so eventually, this mutual friend of ours, um, who goes out to eat all the time, who lives in Paris, offered to drive me. So he drove me from Paris to Trudeau-Terre, this lovely April day. And, um, and I went, and it was magic. It was a magical place, and I met Koba, and we hit it off quite well, to the point that I was like, okay, it's a nice place. Seems like a nice guy. Let's hope that the food is good. And the food was great. Food is, his food is, he's my favorite, favorite right now. And so, uh, so then I started uh, doing some consulting there. So I was there for three months and it was fantastic. So my job was to change the wine list, which was basically 95% conventional wines to natural wines. That was fun. Yeah. So you've had to make that introduction a couple times now. And it, it feels like almost it was an introduction that was made for you by other people. Because coming from the Trotters, you were definitely working with more conventional classics. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what would you say to a sommelier that was like getting more into natural wines and wondering about how to talk about that with their, their own guests? Well, I mean, it, it certainly was a new thing in, in Belgium. It depends what your market is like, right? I, I've been fortunate. I've been working in, in Scandinavia where everybody is 100% natural. Everybody meaning the sommeliers, the restaurants, the importers, the distributors, almost everybody. So it's there's more visibility. Whereas... 
In Spain, not so much. In Belgium, it's still a new thing. They still really ask for Bordeaux. They don't care if it's class. They just want something from Bordeaux, and they want something from Burgundy, and they want Sancerre. So you need to have these things. But you know, for me, it was finding natural wines or organic wines or biodynamic wines that kind of fit in those, and to introduce them to these wines. It took a little while. Sure, it took a little bit of work, but um, they we were lucky. The guests were really into it. But I mean, people were first of all there for the food, and then. We didn't really have any other option, so um, it was a little bit of, okay, this is the kind of wine that you like, so maybe we can find a happy medium. You're not going to be wanting this wine, even though you think it, you're going to want it. You know, like Sebastien Ruffaut, some kind of Sancerre. They, they probably wouldn't expect that one. But maybe I'll find you something else. So it's a little bit of work. And eventually you headed off to Geranium? Eventually, yeah. Um, yeah, that was uh, last year. So I did, I did two three-month stints with... Um, I had a fantastic 18 months where I was um, traveling around and working with Kobe for a few months and working in London with Nuno and the rest of the time I was bouncing around. I worked at a sakekura in, in Japan and it was, it was a great time. And then, um, and then all that kind of dried up so I decided that I needed to settle down for a little bit. And so um, again, it was actually the same guy, the same person that connected me with Kobe, connected me with uh, Soren who's one of the owners and the manager at, at Geranium. They were needed somebody. I was looking for a gig. I like Copenhagen. I knew them. So it was fit. It, it fit. And, and they have natural wines as well. So it was, it was a very easy fit. So I was there for a year. And, and how did you find it? I mean, I don't think a lot of people in New York know about geranium. but Geranium. Well, geranium is famous because Rasmus Kofu, he's the chef. He, um, he's the only chef to ever have won the Bocuse d'Or, but also bronze and silver. And then he won gold. And he's not French. So the food, as you can imagine, is quite composed. So it's a little bit different than what I would work with. More organic, as in free-flowing presentation. Um, but he still used clean, organic food, and the flavors were still very Scandinavian. Um, but it was a bit different because it was a fine dining restaurant. I, I hate that term, but I mean, it was, it was a little less relaxed, even though they wanted to be relaxed. There was a little bit of, there was, it's, you know, it's also one of the most expensive restaurants in, in Copenhagen. Yeah really expensive actually so that was also weird for me to be to be charging this much for a wine and I then I knew how much it cost that was a little difficult but I had to do it and it was it, it was fine yeah it was fine <laughs> are you convinced <laughs> no but so now Contra and it's going to be a little oh, yeah. less formal than something like training Contra is Contra is going to be very chill um Jeremiah and Fabian Jeremiah Stone Fabian Van Hauske Valquierra long, long lane. Um, they were both bouncing around Europe as well. And so somehow we had connected through mutual friends, ended up meeting in Paris one day for coffee and hit it off really well and decided, yeah, that's a good idea. And uh, they've been talking, they've been working about this for probably two years. You know, thinking about it, planning it, finding the space, doing the build out. And so we're almost open. We're going to be in the Lower East Side. And uh, it's going to be quite casual. Casual in that we're not going to be expensive. It's a five-course tasting menu for $55. Tasty food, market-driven. It will change every day, and the wines will change every day. Well, no. Uh, two wines by the glass will change every day. It's going to be fun. And uh, how, how close are we to opening? I mean, what's the story? I would like to say two weeks. Wow. But it's going to be longer than that it's probably. It's going to be longer. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> but, but it's close. But it's what's close. your experience been like so far back in New York? It's been fun. I mean, I'm being a tourist. I'm going to, I saw the ballet and Alvin Ailey. I'm going to museums. I've done a few tastings. It's been great because I haven't really spent that much time in New York. And any time that I've been here, it's always been work-related. Come in, do an event, do a tasting and leave. So it's nice to just kind of hang out, visit some friends or by chance people are actually in the city visiting at the same time. So I get to hang out with them. It's great. What's the wine scene like here compared to, say, Europe? Europe in general? Yeah, I mean, some of the experiences you've had in both places. <clears throat> well, I mean, New York and London are the best places on the planet to learn about wine. You can taste everything from anywhere on the planet, which is fantastic. And there are people that are studying and that are focused. I think in America, the study is a little bit more rigid. There are certainly more studious people. There are certainly way more people in, in North America focusing on the studies for, for the Master Sommelier than, than in Europe. But there's, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And, and not just, 
new wines or natural wines, but older wines as well in both cities. Whereas in Copenhagen, the, the conventional wines that are out there are not that interesting. I don't know if I ever tasted any when I was there. Um, and in Belgium, it was a bit of work. Spain, it's a bit of work. I mean, being in New York is, is a, it's a bit like being in a, like a kid in a candy store, right? I get to taste anything if I want. Not that I'm going out to every tasting and I'm not tasting terribly much, actually. But um, it's out there and I know that it's out there and it's just great. And people are talking about it. I was so lucky. Pascaline from Rouge Tomate, she invited me to help out with the mock exam for the MS candidates. And I was so honored to be a part of that, even just to, to be around these younger people that are studying and that are focused, A, remembering to when I did it, and B, to be able to hopefully help mentor them or give them one piece of advice, hopefully that it helped them. But it was just great to be around people that wanted to talk about wine in that way. Not really, I didn't really have that in, uh, in Europe. And how long do you foresee yourself working at Contra? I figure I'll be here till about November, more or less. And then what's the next move for you? No idea. Maybe we should leave it right there. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Linda. Levy. Thank you. Word. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.